Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio. I'm backstage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Man, I am so excited about this show that we have for you this week, guys. Uh, we have got some great guests. Emily St. John Mandel is here. She is the author of a book called Station Eleven. You might have heard about this because Station Eleven was nominated for all kinds of uh, awards this year. It it sort of looks into the idea of a dystopian future where a virus sweeps across the world and kills most of the population. It was so interesting and kind of so terrifying that we decided to get an actual infectious disease doctor on the show as well, Dr. Paul Lewis, to tell us how possible that really is. And then to make us feel better, we are going to hear some comedy from Mr. W. Kamau Bell. And then we've got music to round it all out from Soft Sleep. If you're hearing this recording, it means the apocalypse didn't hit. And that's good news, because it means you've got a cool radio show you can hear, starting right now. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Live Wire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire! With comedian W. Kamau Bell, Station Eleven author Emily Mandel, with music from Soft Sleep, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Live Wire... He hasn't been viral since he's been taking his antibiotics. Luke Burbank! Wow, thank you so much, Jason Rouse, our announcer. Thanks to all of you for coming out here to Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Yes. We have a great show coming up for you. We're very excited. The theme that we've picked this hour is going viral, okay? Because as you've probably heard, that is how you become a big deal in the current media landscape. It used to be you would train for years on how to sing or dance or act. That's the 1980s, okay? In this modern era, all you have to do is be ready when somebody points the camera at you to say something meaningful, to say something profound like, hide your kids, hide your wives, hide your husbands, because they're raping everybody up in here. Take that, Toni Morrison. Um, I have been in two things that would rise to the level of what is considered viral, and they have both been terrible. (laughs) Like, they've been viral because they were not successful at all. The first thing was when I was starting out uh, doing radio hosting stuff and got a chance to interview an Icelandic band that sings in a made-up language called Hopelandish. And they're called Sigaros. And uh, a lot of people would hear those words, Icelandic band and made-up language, and they would know that that interview is not going to end well. (laughs) But I am not most people. I am an idiot. And I decided to do that interview, and it was even worse than you could have imagined. It is regularly selected by the Internet as one of the worst interviews ever with a band. It's been viewed hundreds of thousands of times, not to brag. (laughs) The second thing that I was involved with that has gone viral is that a friend of my wife and I's asked us if we would be in what we were told was just going to be like a short, funny video. And it was going to be for a software company, a big, huge software company in the Seattle area that uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to say the name, so I'll just... It's, it rhymes with uh, Microsoft. <laughs> I really froze up on the rhyming part of that. And the, the thing was we were supposed to re- record a funny little video that was like a come back to Apple announcing a new iPhone. And we did the little video, and in it we pretended that we were Apple employees and we're talking to our supervisor. Um, And the problem was, when they put the video together and put it on the internet, nobody had realized that the guy who played the supervisor from the back, which was the shot, looked a lot like Steve Jobs, who had died very recently before this. So the story in the media became... Microsoft mocks the passing of Steve Jobs, which I am here to say was not the point. I promise you, I was there. I know it was not what we were trying to do. But 
Then Microsoft PR took the video down, and they said it was a mistake, which was like the understatement of the year, because it was a pretty big mistake. So then the video and the comments about it are going all around the world and ending up on all these different networks. And it's a very weird thing when you see people talking about something you did and describing your motivations and your actions when they weren't there and they have actually no idea. It ended up on Fox News' business channel. <laughs> and I still remember watching the, at the end of this report, which was talking about how we were mocking Steve Jobs, the Fox News anchor, she kind of just shook her like perfectly quaffed <laughs> Fox News head and she said, making fun of a dead man, that is low. <laughs> and I was like, that's really something coming from a network that hired Carl Rove to do political <laughs> consulting. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to... I don't want to get bogged down in my negative experiences with going viral. I still think that there's a chance that going viral can be a really good thing for Livewire. And that is why we have assigned our own Sean McGrath to the task of studying the internet this week and figuring out how we can go viral as a radio show. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean McGrath. Thank you. Hey, Luke. Hey, Sean. So uh, what have you found to take us viral? Okay, well, um, I did a lot of research on this over the last week, and it's pretty simple, really. Um, the surefire way to have a video become a hit is to film someone getting hit right in the huevos. Huevos uh, rancheros. Um, ideally, by this child's t-ball bat. Is that what the bat you're holding is yeah, all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what I'm planning on doing is uh, whacking you right in the berries, <laughs> right in the old change purse. Um, and then after that, we were on the gravy train to internet stardom. I don't feel great about this idea, Sean. I'm just going to be honest with you. You had all week to do this. You had to have researched some other stuff. And also, I'm not letting you hit me in the crotch with a bat. Well, this was like my, this was my first idea, and I thought it was a good one, and I just took the rest of the week off. Um, what if I pick, like, a child out of the audience to come do it? Because they they'll do it slightly weaker than me. Sean, I'm a hard no on getting nailed in the sack to go viral. Well, I don't, I don't have anything else, Luke. That was, okay. that was How about lightning this? in a How bottle. About this? We've still got a lot of show left. Could yeah. you go backstage and do some research, see if you can come up with a better idea? Between better now, than that? Yeah, better than me getting hit in the jewels. Okay, I'll try, but I'm not and making any promises. Could you also leave the bat on the stage, please? I'll, I'll leave the bat. Yeah, thank you. I don't trust you with it. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean McGrath. Uh, that was not what I was hoping he was going to come up with. Um, Hey, Emily St. John Mandel is the author of four novels. Her latest, Station Eleven, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And speaking of going viral, it's set in the near future and follows a Shakespearean troupe as they wander through the Midwest. After a worldwide pandemic has wiped out most of mankind, critics are calling it the feel-good book of the winter. <laughs> Sean's also in charge of researching what book critics are saying. Strike two, McGrath. Please welcome Emily St. John Mandel to Livewire. Hi there, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. I know you have been so busy. For the six people in America who have not read your latest book, Station Eleven, can you kind of lay out the plot and what happens? Sure, absolutely. So my extremely brief, slightly shallow elevator pitch is it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. So when I'm asked to sum it up in a sentence, that's what I usually go with. Um, it's about what remains and everything's lost, about what might survive the end of the world, um, about what we might try to recreate if such a thing were to happen. Is this something that you had been thinking about a lot in your personal life? Because it's very specific, some of the stuff that's in this book. And I'm wondering... So, like Hell is Other Flutes? Is that, is that what you're thinking of? Well, when? yes. Yeah. Were you in a traveling symphony in a post-apocalyptic um, world? Because it's very not. believable what you're Thank writing. You. Thank you very much. Um, I have been in the working world since I was 18. So, you know, that's not dissimilar in some ways. You know, groups of dysfunctional people, um, dystopias. Um, 
Yeah, I was in a dance company, I guess, as a teen. That might have been part of it. Yeah, you know, I was, um, I was interested in writing about the modern world. And it seemed to me an interesting way to do that would be to write about its absence. So I'd originally thought that I would write a novel set entirely in the present day about a troupe of Shakespearean actors. I was going to set it in present-day Canada. And that would have been such a boring book. I'm really happy that I didn't actually write that. Um, We'd like to um, apologize to our Canadian stations. <laughs> I want them to know that I would totally read that book. I should interject at this point and say I do have dual citizenship. So I feel like my Canadian passport allows me to, to disc Canada yes. from time to time. Um, I can disc the U.S. too, if that, if that helps. Um, yeah, so I was going to set it in the present day. But I did want to write about this extraordinary time in which we find ourselves, technologically speaking. Now, this world where speaking to somebody on the other side of the planet is as simple as entering a series of numbers into a handheld device where you can cross the Atlantic Ocean in six hours. You know, these are extraordinary things that we do tend to take entirely for granted. It seemed to me that an interesting way to write about those things, and in doing so, perhaps to write about the modern world in a broader sense, would be to consider its absence. So I decided to keep that original idea of the traveling theater company, but end the world and set it in a post-apocalyptic landscape. It seems to be somewhat in vogue right now to talk about how terrible technology is for us, that we're all looking at our phones all the time and that people don't communicate face-to-face -face the way they used to. But this book actually seems to be kind of a love letter to the cloud and to right. cellular technology. Like, no one in the book is like, thank God we don't have that crap anymore. Right. It's Life is almost so, yeah. all anyone talks about who was alive when that stuff was still working. Because it would seem like science fiction, wouldn't it, looking back? Like, do you remember when we could talk to each other, not face-to-face, -face, like how extraordinary that was? Um, no, I am deeply ambivalent about aspects of our technology. I do think that we're too distracted, generally speaking. And I'm speaking for myself here. But, you know, it was... Um, it was really interesting to write about both times, actually. You know, the book moves back and forth in time, and I did like juxtaposing this somewhat cluttered, somewhat distracted, but in many ways spectacular time in which we live with a much more stripped-down, minimalistic, altered future. Uh, you do an amazing job of writing from the perspective of, I think he's a 51-year-old uh, man, this actor, Arthur Leander, who is... Um, not alive for much of the book. I don't think I'm spoiling much no, there. No, I don't think it's a spoiler to say he dies in chapter one. Right. Yeah. But he's... <laughs> he is uh, very present in the book as a character. And I, I think as, a, you know, as a, a guy who is kind of working my way towards that age, I thought you did a really good job of capturing the kind of ennui that he might feel and all Thank that. Thank you. How... Like, were you just taking a shot at what it must feel like to be a dude whose best days are behind him or... Yes, you have that a, was, yeah, yeah, I didn't, uh, I can't think of any specific research there, I was just kind of imagining, I guess. Um, I was thinking a little bit with Arthur Leander, that character, about the warping influence of extreme fame. You know, I was kind of interested in writing about celebrity culture, which is such a weird, dark aspect of our world. That, you know, you're standing in line at the supermarket, you see these tabloids with about the same, what, 12 or 13 recurring characters every week. We follow their lives in the same way that my grandmothers followed soap operas. Like, it's like we forget that they're real. It's like we're checking in on the trials and tribulations of these almost fictional characters. So I guess I was thinking with Arthur about what that kind of insane scrutiny might potentially do to a person, how it might warp a personality over time. So yeah, I, um, I made all of that up about the 51-year-old. Yeah, the it's very oh, convincing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's interesting because you're writing about celebrity culture and nothing looks more ridiculous than people who are just trying to struggle to stay alive, finding old scraps of, you know, like gossip rags. Right. And yet this book has made you, in literary circles, a pretty big celebrity. I mean, it's a huge book. It's been nominated for National Book Award, Penn Faulkner. Um, there is a line in the book that uh, is very essential to everything that the, the troupe has written on one of their wagons. And it is, survival is insufficient. Right. And I stole that line from Star Trek Voyager. It was, um, yeah, it was a great episode that I saw in 1999. And it stayed with me. It struck me as the most elegant expression of something I believe to be true. When you heard that line coming from your TV, did you mm -hmm. immediately think of it as profound? Did it strike you right then? Or was it only later when you were writing this book that you sort of circled back to it? 
It's hard to, it's hard to remember what exactly I was thinking because I was, I was probably 19. But um, I think it, it, it did stay with me for some reason. You know, I don't have a specific memory of hearing it and thinking, wow, that just blew my mind. Um, but it did stay with me all these years, which I guess says something about how I must have reacted at the time. And I, I guess the answer is really that I circled back to it. It's more when I started writing this book, I suppose, that it began to occur to me that that, that line functioned as almost the, um, the, the thesis statement almost of the book, you know, mm-hmm. and also the reason for the symphony's existence, which is that we do always want more than just food, water, and shelter. And it seemed to me that instinct would stay with us through the end of the world. Because so many of the other books and movies about a sort of dystopian future, it seems like culture is the first thing that goes out the window because you're just trying to stay alive, right? Right, it's true. And and so you were trying to take a different approach with this? I was. And the timeline in the book is very conscious in that regard. You know, I've read a lot of post-apocalyptic novels that I really loved, which were, in essence, horror novels. You know, because they dealt with that territory of mayhem and chaos and nightmare immediately following a complete societal collapse. And for me, it's not that I don't think that period wouldn't occur. It's that it's not plausible to me that it would last forever everywhere on Earth. And so it seemed to me that because that ground had been so well covered by other writers and by filmmakers, and because I didn't really want to write a horror novel with cannibalism like The Road... um, that it might be. More, I really thought the road yeah. was going to get happier at the end. It, I, it did you, not. It you did, think, yeah. These people think I'm just trying to be funny. Uh-huh. I got to the last page and I was like, "This is really the book." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought there was going to be an Arby's or something. Right, something. Yeah, yeah. Hmm? I wish there should be a, some kind of a like warning at the beginning of that book. Yeah, this will not relent. Yeah, yes, like a sticker or something. Something like yeah. that. There is an amazing moment in in your book, Station Eleven, where two characters are talking about the last phone call that one right. of them. Painful, right? It's, yeah. it's because the phone call. Again, I I mm-hmm. don't think I'm spoiling anything with this, but the phone call was not to this man's wife or family. It was to his boss, yeah. and it was one of those terribly banal like business dude conversations about was, circling right, back. Right. It was like, I'm going to shoot Dan an email and then we'll circle back next week. And you're just God, like that was my last phone call. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that might be, um, yeah, that might be the saddest moment of the book. <laughs> yeah. That business speak drives me crazy. I, well, are you living your life any differently as you think about that stuff? Because until I read that passage, it hadn't occurred to me that any of this dumb stuff that we're doing that isn't meaningful could be Mm -hmm. the last thing that we're doing or it could be our last interaction with a person and I don't want it to be talking to my boss saying well let's put a pin in that or let's circle back are you carrying that information around are you living your life any differently when you think of it that way not really because I mean the terrible thing is we have to have those emails and conversations like you know what if you actually do need to send an email to your boss that says let's put a pin in this and then surface those issues and drill down to a greater level of granularity or whatever it is you're required to say in your professional <laughs> life, which, you know, it's not English. I don't know what that language is. Um, you know, what if you do have to send that email? That's kind of hard to get around. I guess being conscious of it is probably the most we can do. And if you see a comet coming, call someone you love. Exactly. Like right yeah. away. Don't, don't call your boss. Don't leave <laughs> right. that as the last communication. Yeah. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking about going viral this week. We've got Emily St. John Mandel here. She wrote Station Eleven, which is about a viral pandemic that wipes out most of the planet. That is fiction, though, and we wanted to really scare the S out of our listeners, and so we thought we would get some information on real-life infectious diseases, so we have an actual specialist in that. Please welcome Dr. Paul Lewis to Livewire. Dr. Paul Lewis, welcome to Livewire. Hey, thanks for having me. We are talking about this kind of uh, fictional idea of a global pandemic, but I'm wondering how real are the chances that something like happens in Emily's book? Uh, how, how, how great are the chances that could actually happen to us here on planet Earth? Well, last time I checked, which was about six o'clock, um, <laughs> the species has been here, or the genus has been here about three million years. So I'm thinking, and there's seven billion of us now, so I'm thinking we're probably okay. But as they say, past experience is no predictor of future earnings. (laughs) I mean... I'm an empiricist, you know, you just got to observe and that's what you get. So you think that because nothing has totally wiped us out yet, we're unwipeoutable? 
to use a scientific term, if yeah, I can? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm thinking, you know, they did find these fossils, and they're 2.8 million years old. So, you know, it's, I think it's a good bet. Well, what, what has done the most damage? What has come the closest, as far as what we're able to measure, to something like what Emily describes in her book? Well, I think there are things that are really, really common, and there's things that are really, really fatal. So if you think about rabies, kills 100% of its victims. Ebola, you know, again, 70 80%, uh, something like that. But they basically don't spread very easily between people. So they're really fatal, but they don't spread. And then if you think about the things that spread really easily, like the cruise ship virus, 100% of the people get it, but the next day they're better. So... Um, you know you have that virus because you have the distinct feeling you want to do the conga. Oh, yeah. That's I, when I've, you need to get to some I've, medical attention. I've had it. I've been part of an outbreak. So, yeah. yeah. And I was giving a lecture, in fact. And it was, I was, before the lecture, I was thinking, maybe I won't have the lunch. You know, whatever. Um, and then about 45 minutes, and usually you stop at 50 minutes, 45 minutes into this, I'm thinking, this is, i got to wrap this thing up. And then before the first question, I called on someone in the audience, just, can you just take the questions? And I did not. I made it to the outer door of the bathroom. <laughs> so, yeah, when you get that thing, you really get it, and then everyone else gets it, too. But, um, but, but then the next day, you're better. I don't really even know what that has to do with our question, but it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> to hear that an eminent doctor such as yourself has also had some bathroom problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, is it true? Uh, but, but, but the point is that the diseases that are really easily spread between people, they've been with us for a long time. We've, we've grown up together evolutionarily, and for the bug to survive, it needs to be able to spread between people. But if it just kills you, it's going to have a hard time spreading. That's what I was going to ask about. So in a way, it, would it be accurate to say that some of these human-killing viruses know not to kill all humans because that would be the end of the line for them as well? Right. And again, I actually do, to be serious, infections are really a horrible problem globally. Think HIV, tuberculosis, uh, malaria, and cause untold suffering uh, and death. But they're not 100% fatal. And even a 1% or 2 or 3% fatality rate is very high uh, for, most, for most of these bugs. So again, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, some death. Um, but not enough to uh, wipe out the planet. What do you do as uh, somebody who studies infectious disease? Um, <laughs> what do you do on a week like this where we learn that everyone has a microscopic feces cloud around them that we can't <laughs> see or smell? Like how, do you, like, how do you just go forward with your life with that information, doctor? <laughs> well, you know, knowledge is power, and... Um, <laughs> You know, since I began my career, we became aware of these microbiomes. There's one in your skin, there's one in your mouth, there's one in your different parts that we don't talk about as much. But they're actually... Apparently we do on this show yeah. when you're here. <laughs> but, but they're actually, your, those are your friends. Because actually, as long as they're there, the bad guys can't get in. There's no room. So again, that's uh, again one of the ideas about uh, healthy diet and staying away from antibiotics and stuff like that, it keeps that, that cloud is actually kind of a force field that keeps the bad guys away. Um, do you have any advice for Emily on if she's going to write a follow-up to this book? Because I do feel that it's, it's, uh, it's ripe for a, for a sequel. I was, I was quite fascinated to try to imagine what would happen to these characters. Can you add any scientific well, yeah, kind I of think, insight for Emily? I think Emily? the seven billion and the warming planet is actually, that, that, that's, you know, again... When we talk about... Um, what do you mean when you say the 7 billion in the warming planet? The 7 the billion, the warming planet, and the crowded conditions. Those are the kind of things uh, that potentially foster the spread of infections. Mm -hmm. And again, things like HIV were unknown 50 years ago. They were probably gotten to humans less than 100 years ago. And it's not that new things can't happen and can't evolve. And the, the changes in the planet and the overcrowding might lead to some uh, un unexpected problems. So that's what we need to be worried about more than the, the Georgia flu, as outlined in Emily's book. Well, I think each other, right? We're the, mo the most dangerous thing is other humans. Well, uh, this is a great so. time to thank you for being on the show and get you off the stage. Dr. Paul Lewis and also Emily St. John Mandel, thank you so much to both of you.
That was Dr. Paul Lewis. Uh, we also were talking to Emily St. John Mandel right here on Livewire Radio, which you are listening to. Our theme this hour is Going Viral, which is a weird segue into our musical act tonight. Uh, we have checked them out, though, and they are totally clean. We promise. Soft Sleep is a new band out of Seattle fronted by an old pal of mine, Mr. Tony Ruland. They released their debut self-titled EP in the spring of this year with lots of dreamy soundscapes that make you nostalgic for things you haven't even experienced yet. That's a way Homer. Just ruminate on that for a minute. And welcome Soft Sleep to Livewire. Soft Sleep, right here on Live Wire Radio. They will be back out here uh, a little bit later on in the show. 
Uh, Luke. Luke? <laughs> hey, buddy. I, uh, Hi, Sean. This is... Uh, I did some research. Sean McGrath, uh, our own Sean McGrath, back with um, hopefully a better idea than the last one about how we could try to go viral as a show since the theme is going viral. You do I, have another idea, I though, do. Right? I think I got the winner. Okay. So how do you feel about right now making some extremely racist or homophobic comments? I feel terrible about that idea, Sean. I mean, you could, you could deny a couple the right to get gay married or a gay couple the right to get married. Either one of those. Your uh, pick. Those are, neither of those are a good choice, Sean. Why, why are you even coming up Not with... Not even a soft no. No. A hard no, hard McGrath. No. Okay. Why, are but, you, why are you coming up with so many terrible ideas? This was, you had all week to work on this. Uh, they were playing all the Bond movies on TNT. <laughs> and so I just, I, I just, I didn't do my research. Sean, I need you to leave the stage now. <laughs> and try your hardest to come up with an idea that's not obviously horrible. I, I'll dig a little deeper, I Please guess. Please do. No promises. Thank you. Sean McGrath, Bye. ladies and gentlemen. Probably his last appearance on this show ever. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Terrible Ideas from Sean McGrath, but also, maybe more importantly, by New Belgium Brewing. Certified as a mission-based B Corp since 2013, meeting requirements in the categories of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. And they make beer, which also makes the world a much better place to live in. More, more information can be found at newbelgium.com. Hey, if you're planning on being in the Portland area, do not miss our October 10th show. We've got author and podcast host Cheryl Strayed coming by, food writer Ruth Reichel, comedian Jackie Cation, and musical legend Van Dyke Parks will be here. Yeah, it's going to be a heck of a show. All right, next up, we've got a Livewire favorite. His FX TV show, Totally Biased, regularly went viral with its sharp, interesting takes on race, sexual orientation, gender, and comedy. His next project is a live radio talk show event called Come Out Right Now to air on KALW in San Francisco, October 29th. Please welcome W. Kamau Bell to Livewire. <laughs> How's it going, Portland? It did not go viral. If it had, we would still be on the air. But thanks, Luke. I appreciate that. Yeah, I told myself I wouldn't get caught up in the lack of minorities when I came to Portland this time. I told myself I had grown and I would let it go, and it didn't happen. It's weird. When I see a dude in Portland without a beard, I go, a minority. You know what I mean? That's how, that's where it at. Last time I was here, I was like, let me go to a black neighborhood. Went to Albina. Albino. Uh, that's a double wordplay joke, everybody. I mean, you're like a lot of urban cities with the gentrification. You're sort of leading the nation in gentrification. Uh, and you know it's bad in Portland. It's like, it's like in San Francisco where I used to live. It's bad there, too. You know gentrification's bad when there's white people upset about it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's white people on Mississippi Street in Portland like, I've lived here for two years! <laughs> two years, damn it! I remember when that coffee shop was a different coffee shop! <laughs> the Wi-Fi is horrible. Start a hashtag, start a hashtag. Mmm. It's hard. It's, I, I, it is weird. Cities change so fast. I get weird nostalgia. I was walking in downtown San Francisco the other day, and I heard myself go, oh, man, I remember when that Chase Bank used to be a Washington Mutual. <laughs> and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. <laughs> we'll get together then, bank. hard. So I'm getting all sorts of nostalgia. I'm starting to get nostalgia for the end of the Barack Obama presidency. It's starting to happen. That's, I don't know what that was, but it didn't seem awesome. Uh, uh, I, hey, I've had issues with Obama, too, but I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him. I got to tell you. I'm going to miss him. I mean, you know, and it's so hard to look at the, the, the election and the thing, the GOP. You look at all those people over there. It looks like a 
think like at best they could play president in a movie. You know what I mean? And I don't mean a good movie. I mean like a Steven Seagal movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Some of those dudes on the right are so unknown they wouldn't recognize themselves in a mirror. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Look at that guy. Wait a minute. He looks like he could be the president. I don't know who he is. And I know there's all this talk, you know, Trump and everything, and it's like, he's the guy. That's how bad it is on there. Trump's the guy. That's the best one. Trump is horrible. He's, he's the worst. He's horrible. And he actually doesn't, he says things that are just really, he said, I'm going to be great for women. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> Maybe if you marry all of them and divorce them, they'll get a big alimony settlement. But I don't know other than that. I don't know how you would be great for women. <laughs> like... You know, in the left, that we're trying to pull it together. Trying to, I live in Berkeley, California now, so I get a lot of Bernie Sanders pressure, a lot of Bernie Sanders peer pressure. Yeah, I, I, yes, yes, I get it. I know, I just, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to commit. I feel like, you know, like I know people, uh, Bernie's good. He had, he's had some little stumbles with the race politics, and I know a lot of supporters always use the same argument. He marched with Dr. King. Yeah, but then he moved to Vermont. So, uh... <laughs> Man, this rally, this march was great. I got to get to some white people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> See, I can tell him. No, I, li I like Bernie Sanders. It's just too early to commit to Bernie Sanders. I feel like with Bernie Sanders, it's like when you go to a nightclub and you're hanging out and it's like 10 o'clock at night and Bernie's at the end of the bar with a drink, want a free drink. And I'm like, nah, nah. I'm going to hang out for a little while. I hear some other people might be showing up. I hear Elizabeth Warren might sneak in here somewhere. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but at 2 a.m., if she hasn't come in, come here, Bernie. Ah! I love hard, everybody. I love hard. And I'm going to miss Obama. As a black person, I'm going to miss Obama for very specific reasons. Thank you, three black people. I'm going to miss Obama. Because Obama was the first president that we had who actually talked directly to black people in a way that we understood. He doesn't do it all the time. He's not consistent enough with it. But sometimes he says stuff that is just for us, and we know it. And sometimes it's sort of hidden in code that, so that the regular white people don't understand. <laughs> like, he just says stuff we know he's talking to. Like, somebody goes, sometimes you just got to brush the dirt off your shoulders. We're like, he's talking about Jay-Z! <laughs> Meanwhile, my in-laws are like, why has he got dirty shoulders? I got white in-laws. Uh... <laughs> So, yeah, but there's times, like, the thing, this is a horrible tragedy, the thing that happened in Charleston, and he gave the eulogy, and it was a horrible tragedy, but he leaned into his blackness in that moment, and it was one of those moments I'm like, I'm going to miss this dude. <laughs> he gave the speech, and at the end of the speech, he slipped in, he was doing that thing, he was dropping his G's, and sounding like MLK, and I was like, ah, oh, it's so good, I'm going to miss it. And at the end, he started talking about his friend who had died, he's like, and he had, he had grace, amazing grace. And then he took that pause, you can tell he's like, wait, am I about to sing? <laughs> yeah, amazing grace. And I was at home like, oh, that's it, that's so black, ah! He's hitting my black chakra, ah! He's all up in my black G-spot! <laughs> Bernie Sanders ain't gonna sing Amazing Grace. Maybe a Joe Hill song, but he's singing Amazing Grace. Hillary Clinton, what you don't want to, uh, man, uh, man. Bill Clinton, get out here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. That's me. That's W. Kamau Bell right here on Livewire Radio, coming to you from PRI. Short break, and we will be right back. Hey, it's Luke, and... Look, you may have forgotten your New Year's resolution by now, but our sponsor, Ergo Depot, has a new one for you, and it is the easiest one ever. Sit less. How's that for an achievable goal? It's not like run a marathon or bench 250. In fact, there's no benching of any kind. You just need to move a little more. And maybe think about getting a swanky new desk like the Jarvis, which morphs itself into a standing desk with just the touch of a button. Visit ergodepot.com and they'll set you up for goal-setting success. Now we do need to talk about your personality. Welcome back to LiveWire. Coming to you from uh, PRI, we're at Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. We have W. Kamau Bell here. We're talking about going viral on the show this hour, and 
There was something that happened to you um, that certainly got a lot of attention on the internet when you were at a restaurant and things got a little wacky. <laughs> That's one way to put it. I'd say racist. Yeah. But what happened? Uh, there's different categories of racism. That was wacky racism. Uh, so, uh, as I alluded to in my act, I'm married to a white lady. Uh, we have two children. Uh, we've got those mixed race kids that are sweeping the nation. And she was at the she was at the cafe with her friends. They were sitting outside, and, it was, and she was at a, with a mom's groups. Happened to be all white women with all white babies. She doesn't only roll with white people. That just was there that day. Uh, and I, wa- I was going to the cafe to meet them, and I went up to the cafe and started to talk to my wife and my uh, baby and her friends, as I think I'm legally allowed to do. And somebody from inside the cafe knocked on the window and looked at me and said, Get out of here! Yeah, because they thought I was uh, black. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the real thing happened. That happened. And, I, and, it, and I, we, uh, you know, we ended up going home and writing a blog about it that we wrote that it was in total good humor but also calling the cafe out. And it went viral, and I got to hear my name pronounced in various ways on local news broadcasts. <laughs> so, wait, did you say anything to the uh, person at the restaurant who made this we, well, like mistake I, in, the, in the moment? We, well, here's what happens. So the woman knocks on the window. I go, what? My wife looks at me. She, does, she didn't see what happened, but she could see in my eye, like, that's Kamal's racism happened look. And then <laughs> an employee came out of the cafe that I thought was the same person. Turns out it was maybe a different person, and she sort of came up uh, to Oh, wait thing. a second. Yeah. We don't all look the same, Kamal. <laughs> look, could you just tell me where Luke went? I thought I was going to talk to Luke. Uh, no. So racism was in my eye, yeah. so I didn't really see what was happening. I didn't really see if it was the same person. But she sort of did that thing. She's trying to come out and shoo, us, shoo me along, and then she realized that I was standing there. That's my wife. This is my daughter. We had eaten breakfast there earlier that day. Also, oh. it was my birthday. Oh. And so we went home and wrote a blog about it because I was like, sometimes, see, with people of color, there's racist stuff that happens every day with the press. People happens to uh, gay people, happens to women, trans people. Stuff happens every day. But sometimes it's just truly exceptional, and you have to write about it and let people know about it. So that was the, the high-level racism. Did they eventually uh, apologize in some way? Did you get, a, a, like, a gift certificate? Uh, <laughs> I assume this was an Olive Garden. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was not an Olive It was not a chain plate. No, they apologized, and we had a whole... Actually, we, we decided to have a community meeting about racism in Berkeley in the Bay Area and 300 people turned out and it was standing room only and we had a big thing and we're going to do more of those meetings and but I can't go back to the cafe because it I, I, I have to know from other people of color that it's cool I don't want to look like the black guy who's like they gave me free breakfast you know like it's yeah <laughs> you have I, you, I don't worry about y'all folks but I got free breakfast yeah. for life you know what yeah I mean? you so, are set up at that place yeah so I gotta just not I gotta let, there's other places to eat breakfast in Berkeley so I'm, I'm good like my house for example uh, <laughs> when I get kicked out of my house, I know yeah. it's because I did do something wrong. <laughs> It'd be great if you were in your own kitchen and just that same lady from the restaurant just came around the corner like, get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I'd know my wife had hired her, and I'd be like, I yeah. should probably go. <laughs> That's right. a pretty good burn. I know, I know what I did. What do, you, what do you have coming up with CNN? Uh, it's, a, it's a travel show on CNN coming up in next, early next year called The United Shades of America. The elevator pitch is they send a black guy to places he either shouldn't go or you wouldn't expect him to go. Like a diner in Berkeley. Like a diner in with Berkeley. With his family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we shot uh, eight episodes. I can't tell you exactly where we went. Some of you probably know. Uh, at least one place I went. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, we shot eight episodes, and they're going to air next year, and we'll see what happens. But forget that. I'm trying to break into public radio like you. I want to get this Well, right, because you, you've got a live show coming up on KALW down in the San Francisco area. Yes. What, what is the plan here? It's called Kamau Right Now. It's uh, for people who are fans of Totally Biased and like the topical take on the news and discussions and, and debates and me talking to people on the street. We're doing that live on KLW. So you can go on KLW.org and you can listen to it. And I don't know if, we, I don't know if we're even going to podcast it. I think you have to listen that day. Because that it's time. live. And we were talking yeah. about this backstage. It doesn't make you nervous at all, the idea that when the light goes on, this is broadcasting out to lots and lots of people in real time. That's not something that stresses you out? I feel like that's happening in life right now with all of us anyway. <laughs> We're always, always potentially on camera broadcasting, so not really. I'm, I'm also six foot four black guy, 250 pounds. I'm, I'm always being watched. I'm, I understand how it works. <laughs> it's nothing new to you? Yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, but this time I'll have jokes while I'm being watched. It's, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it'll be a good time. All right, well, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. W. Kamal Bell, ladies and gentlemen, right here on LiveWire.
This is Livewire Radio. This week's show brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines with 80 nonstops from Seattle. And this fall, adding New York's Kennedy Airport. Now the city that never sleeps is just a nap away. Alaska Airlines, keeping you connected nonstop. More information at alaskaair.com. Hey, Luke. Um, I got it. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I got it. Um, okay, just Sean McGrath back once again to try to help us go viral as a show. Yeah. I have to say, trust me on this. Your one, ideas though. so far have been just awful. Oh, for two. Okay, but uh, that's why that's why Casey had three strikes, you know, and then he hit that last one out of the park. So, all right, what do you have for me? <laughs> it happened. Dave Jorgensen, what are you doing? I was told to do this. Yeah. Just keep going, Dave. It happened. At first, I didn't believe it, but it did happen. I had placed half of a turkey sandwich into the fridge in the green room. An hour later, it was gone. Sean? I had so many questions. Who did it? And why? So I asked announcer Jason Rouse. I told you it wasn't me. I wasn't there. I was with Asia. What kind of sandwich was it, anyway? It was turkey and sharp provolone. That actually sounds really good. Yeah. yeah. Half of it was really good. Um, it sounds like you're just ripping off cereal. Luke, show. I am taking us viral the only way I know how. By ripping off the plot and music from the show Cereal? Exactly. My sandwich was delicious, Luke, and it was stolen. And I've got 13 one-hour episodes to figure out who took it and why. You know what? This is a great idea. I say we do it. You finally got there, Sean. Good job, buddy. Thank you. Sean McGrath, ladies and gentlemen. Play me out, Dave. Dave Jorgensen. It took us a while, but we finally figured out how we were going to make some viral audio on this show. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, one more time. Please welcome Soft Sleep. Thank you.
Let us soft sleep right here on Livewire. And that's our show. That was, uh, that did not go exactly the way I thought it would, but it was fun and interesting nonetheless. Hey there, it's Luke. I'm back in the green room now. Here we are at the end of the show. First of all, big thanks to Emily St. John Mandel, who she traveled all the way across the country to tell us about her version of how the world might end. Uh, Also, a big thanks to Dr. Paul Lewis, who came from more or less right here in Portland to tell us how uh, Emily St. John Mandel's version is pretty unrealistic, but entertaining nonetheless. And it was cool to have a doctor on the show who made us feel, uh, you know, a little less bad about our normal non-doctor lives. Also, thanks to W. Kamau Bell and Soft Sleep for uh, rounding everything out. This show was made possible in part by our wonderful sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Accommodations for our Portland shows generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of LiveWire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is a producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom, Dave Jorgensen, and Ben Landsverk. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. The wonderful Laura Haddon is our marketing manager, and Laura Masterson is our operations manager. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is done by Mr. D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find people. For more information about our show or how you can become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org or you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and find us on Facebook at LiveWire Radio. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Luke Burbank and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International